Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live in a, according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Good morning. Now, hand up if you had more than seven hours sleep last night. That's amazing. Well done. Hand up if you got less than five. Yeah, okay. So if you're sitting next to one of those people and they start to nod off, feel no shame. You're a bit of a, you know, just wake them up, all right? The consistent New Testament testimony is that Jesus from Nazareth is the one true living God who's come amongst us as a human being. Jesus is not just a prophet or a mouthpiece for God. He's not just an empowered agent of God doing God's bidding. He is, the New Testament says, God himself in the flesh. Incarnate is the theological word. Enfleshed. Now that is a mind-bending claim. Because the Bible says that God is the creator of all that is. He created time and space. He's created millions of galaxies. The thought that he would take on a tiny, frail human body that he would live and die over a period of just 30 years on an obscure rock, ob you know, um, orbiting a nondescript star in a nothing part of the universe. That, why would the one true living God do that? The whole idea is somewhat baffling. Some would say it's ludicrous, that it's flat-out impossible. Yet it is the clear and repeated testimony of the New Testament writers. Have a look there on your page 25 of your booklet. 
you can follow along. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul quotes what seems to be an early Christian piece of poetry about Jesus, possibly a song that they sung. It says there, He appeared in the flesh, referring to the incarnation, was vindicated by the Spirit, probably a reference to Jesus' resurrection in the power of the Spirit, was seen by angels, Jesus' resurrection was recognised in the heavenly realms, was preached among the nations, he was and has been proclaimed around the world, was believed on in the world, even here in Australia, and taken up in glory. Jesus now rules at his Father's right hand in glory. Or elsewhere in, say, Colossians 2 verse 9, Paul writes, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Or choose a different New Testament author, this time John chapter 1 verse 14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So why would the one true living God come amongst us in the flesh? It's a question Christians have asked for thousands of years. Anselm was Archbishop of Canterbury, England, nearly a thousand years ago. He wrote a a famous book called Why the God-Man? Or in Latin, I can't speak Latin, so do homo? I don't know. It's written there on your book. But why the God-man is how it translates. Why did God come amongst us as the man, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, I'm not going to dig into Anselm's answer, but the question remains an important one. Why the God-man? And the New Testament gives at least three answers, which you can jot down there on your page, and we're going to throw up on the screen as well. Why the God-man? Well, the first answer the New Testament gives is that God appeared in the flesh for the sake of revelation, so that we can know what God is like. John made this point in John 1.14, we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The writer to the Hebrews makes a similar point at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, you can see on your screen. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And notice that this next sentence, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So if you want to know what the one true living God is like, then you look to Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being and character. Now think about how this applies. Do you want assurance that God loves you? Well, then look at Jesus and notice his compassion for the lost. Notice his compassion for those who are stuck in sin or for the marginalized in his society. Do you want reassurance that God cares about justice? Well, then look at how Jesus exposed the selfish corruption of the powerful, how he promised vindication for the oppressed. Do you want reassurance that God is actually in control? Well, then look at Jesus. He could command even the wind and the waves. He could dispel sickness with a word. He could even raise the dead. Revelation. That's why God became a human being. Revelation. But second, God came in the flesh to bless us with his presence. The story of God's presence with his people is an important theme right throughout the Bible. 
In fact, it's a way you could tell the whole Bible story. Think about it. Adam and Eve enjoying the blessing of life in God's presence in the Garden of Eden. But then access to God's presence was what they lost because of sin when they were kicked out of the Garden. Think about the experience of the Israelites at Mount Sinai when God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and they had an experience of his presence. And the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament represented God's presence amongst his people. And then finally, God sending his son in the flesh amongst us is the climax of that story of God's presence. As John put it there in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling, literally pitched his tent amongst us. So God became flesh to bless us with his presence. But thirdly, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, God took on flesh to secure our redemption, our reconciliation with God. So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, which I'll throw up on the screen for you, we read this, For this reason, the Son had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Simply put, God had to take on flesh in order to save you and me. Now, why exactly that was, why that was necessary, we'll return to in a moment. But before we get into that, we need to take a quick sidetrack to clear up what we mean when we say God came in the flesh. Have a look there on page 26. This is a little bit of a tricky thing. The word translated flesh in our English Bible is the Greek word sarx. Now, sarx has quite a number of meanings, which with the help of a Bible dictionary, I've tried to map out on the page there for you. The reason this matters is because you don't want to bring the wrong assumption when you read the word flesh in your Bible. And it can mean various things. So the literal meaning, if we follow the diagram, the literal meaning of sarx or flesh is physical matter. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 39, people have one kind of flesh, animals another kind of flesh, birds another, fish another. So it just refers to your physical body. Or more specifically, it can refer to the human body, or the human race even, as a whole. And there's some examples there on your page. By extension then, sarks or flesh can refer to not the human body, but to human existence or natural human life. I'll give you an example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says that Jesus' life is being revealed in Paul's own sarks, in his flesh. What he means is in his lived experience. Or in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is described as a descendant of King David according to the flesh, that is, with regard to his human ancestry. So the point you need to note at this moment, though, is that all of those use of the word flesh are morally neutral. Flesh in these instances is just the physical life lived in a human body. There's no particular moral overtone to it. But sometimes in the New Testament, we encounter the same word, sarx, with an explicitly negative moral tone. How does that come about? Well, Talking about this fleshly existence leads naturally, I think, to a comparison with the unseen spiritual realm in which God rules. And so sometimes sarks or flesh is used as a metaphor 
to contrast this worldly realm, enslaved as it is to sin, with the holiness of God's kingdom, where Jesus rules. So, for example, when the Apostle Paul is defending himself to the Corinthians against the accusation that he's gone back on his word, that he said he'd do one thing, but then he changed his mind, he asked this question in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 17. He says, Do I make my plans in a fleshly manner, so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? He means, do I make my plans in a worldly manner, in a, in a, not in a holy way? Or in Romans 8 verse 5, Paul draws a sharp contrast between living according to the flesh, which is opposed to God, and living according to the Holy Spirit within you. He says there, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the, what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So you can see in those two cases, the use of sarks or flesh is definitely morally negative. So what this means is that we just need to be careful when we come across the word flesh in our English Bibles, because it has this wide semantic range. The only way you can work out which one it should be is by the context. The context will tell you what the author meant. So you just need to read carefully. So to get your brains working this morning on this chilly Katoomba morning, I'm going to put up four verses here on the screen from Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he uses the word sarks or flesh. So in groups of three around where you're sitting, you've got to work out which meaning of sarks or flesh fits best each of these verses, right? So you've got the little map there of what sarks can mean. You've got the four verses. Work in groups of three or four and go, which use of flesh or sarks fits this particular verse? I'm going to give you a few moments to do that work together. All right. Now, you may well have found that your English Bible has already done some of the work for you. And you're going, I couldn't find the word flesh there at all. And that's because they've already tried to go, ah, oh, which meaning of flesh should we use here? And they've done the work for you. So, I mean, sometimes... But just remember, that was just a decision they made, right? The actual word was flesh. They've decided which one it means. You always should think about, well, did they get it right? I mean, they're making a decision. So... If you want to argue about which understanding of Sark's best fits each of those verses, you'll just have to ask me later because we've got more wonderful things to talk about. I'm not going to go through them. So we're going to return to the question of why is it necessary for God to come in the flesh to save us? And we're going to help us uh, by looking at Romans chapter 8, which was the passage Henry read out for us earlier. And it's printed there in your booklet, the first part of it, on page 26. So if you can make sure you've got that in front of you. Paul starts in Romans 8 verse 1 with what, and I'm being a little bit bold here, I think this might be the most precious truth of your existence. Romans 8 verse 1, I, I'm suggesting maybe the most precious truth of your existence. There is therefore now, says Paul, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is the only thing that you and I have actually earned from the one true living God. Our rejection of God's word and his way means we have earned condemnation from him. It's described in this passage as having our mind set on the flesh, sending our mind on the worldly ways that are opposed to God's word and way. 
Have a look down a bit further in the passage at verses 5 to 8. Notice the contrast. There are two ways to live. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's the sarks word, the flesh word. Here Paul is using it in the sense of rebellious human nature that is opposed to God. The alternative to living according to the flesh is to live according to the Holy Spirit, which is what is made possible when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the outcomes of these two ways of life. There in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As long as we continue to live in the flesh according to worldly desires and thoughts, then we remain hostile to God and the outcome is death, condemnation. Yet the astounding good news here in God's Word is that there is now no condemnation for those who have turned to Christ Jesus. So the question is why? Why is there no condemnation when that's the actual thing that you and I deserve? And that brings us to the key verse of this passage, halfway through, verse 3. Paul says, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. So the reason there is now no condemnation for sin in Christ Jesus is that in Christ Jesus, our sin has already been condemned. You can see it up there on the screen. There's now no condemnation for our sin in Christ Jesus because in Christ Jesus, our sin has already been condemned. God sends His Son in the likeness of our sinful flesh so that in Jesus' flesh, as he hangs on that cross, our sins receive what they deserve. Why would God do such a thing? Well, the repeated New Testament testimony is that God gave his son to death on the cross out of love for us. Paul says it earlier in the same letter, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So sin gets the condemnation it deserves from God, but it gets it in Jesus' flesh, not in yours or mine. Such is God's great love for us, Father, Son and Spirit, working as one God to set us free from the condemnation we deserve. It still leaves a question though, how can Jesus do this for us? How can sin be condemned? How can my sin be condemned in his flesh? Well, I'm on page 27 of your outline. The key is to realise that in the wisdom and plan of God, Jesus is not just any old human being. He is our representative and substitute. As we saw in Romans chapter 8 verse 3, God sends his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and sent him, Paul says, for sin, that is to deal with the sin problem that has this devastating effect on all of us since Adam and Eve in the garden. So your sin, my sin, Adam's sin, Eve's sin, Mary's sin, Joseph's sin, all sin, 
Jesus took all of that sin upon himself as our unique representative and substitute. And he did it so that you and I would not be condemned. Even though Jesus himself was the only human being never to sin, at that moment, as our representative, he became sin, our sin, so that we might not face the condemnation we deserve. I was trying to think, how do you illustrate this idea of Jesus representing all of us? How can he represent all of us? It's a bit like I was thinking Penny Wong, so Australia's foreign minister. If she signs an agreement with a foreign nation on Australia's behalf, as our appointed representative, when Senator Wong signs the paper, all those who are in Australia are now in a new relationship with that foreign power. She is our representative, legitimately. Well, Jesus is humanity's representative, legitimately. But instead of signing some paper, Jesus dies under God's condemnation of sin, our sin, and he does so on our behalf. But in order to be our representative and substitute, Jesus has to be both fully God and fully human. Why is this? Well, let me think about that together. To be our representative... Jesus has to be one of us. That's the point Paul makes when he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus had to be fully one of us. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. I'll throw it up on the screen. Since the children have flesh and blood, the Son too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For him to represent us, God the Son had to become fully like us, fully one of us. But in order for him to be a just and perfect substitute, Jesus couldn't be just another human being. If he was, he would deserve God's condemnation for his own sins. The only substitute who can die in our place was the one who was without sin himself. But where can we find a human being without sin? Well, only when the sinless God comes in the flesh do we meet a sinless human who can be our perfect substitute. And moreover, some have complained that the idea of Jesus dying for your sin or for my sin seems a bit unjust. It doesn't seem fair that God would condemn Jesus when Jesus himself had done nothing wrong. But if Jesus is God himself, then God is not punishing an innocent third party. Rather, it's God taking this condemnation upon himself. The death of Jesus for sin is not a picture of injustice. It's actually a jaw-dropping picture of God's love, that God would sacrifice himself for us. Only if Jesus is fully God is the cross just. Only if Jesus is fully human is the cross effective. I'll say that again. Only if Jesus is fully God is the cross just. Only if Jesus is fully human is the cross effective. 
the fact that it's God who comes in the flesh to condemn our sin in his flesh, that is the wonder of the incarnation. It blows our mind enough to think that the one true living God would become a frail little human being, but it is unfathomable that he would then submit himself to death at the hands of his own creatures, enduring his own holy wrath against sin, and that he would do that out of love for the very creatures who killed him. Remember the prayer that James pointed us to last night from Ephesians chapter 3? Paul prayed that the Ephesians would have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That's what we're talking about here. He became this and did that for us. Do you like theological calisthenics? I've just invented it. It's going to go big on the internet. He became this and did that for us. Will you do it with me? You can do it while sitting down. Just try not to... That, that's the dangerous one, okay? Just, you know, just, just watch that one, all right? Here we go. Yep. This is, it's, it, the educationists, you know, the students, they'll say, oh, yeah, this is good learning, apparently. Anyway, whatever. Um, ready? Here we go. He, you're thinking about God there, right? He became this and did that for us. For me. <laughs> okay? John Stott, who wrote a great little book. Actually, it's not a little book. Okay, it's a big book. <laughs> the reason, a great reason to read Bonhoeffer's life together is that's like fully 80 pages. Like, it is very, very short. Where's Jack Stevens? Jack Stevens. I even got Jack Stevens to read it. That's right. You can ask him later and he'll tell you that, you know, it's one of the few books he's actually ever read. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it's great, it's a little book, but John Stott wrote a much bigger book, but it's an awesome book called The Cross of Christ. And he has a great section in it, a whole chapter on the self-substitution of God for our sin. But this is one of the things he says there, it's up on the screen. He says, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. We claim prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to us alone. So what sort of response should we make to all of this? It should move us to humble awe and eternal praise. 
awe and praise because he became this and did that for me. That was the only way to save us. If you were God, if you were the creator of time and space, would you do it? He must love us so much. I think our problem is distraction. We forget. Well, let's make sure this week we recapture some of that humble awe at what God has done for us. And when that humble awe captures your heart, you will burn with eternal praise. Look at what he has done for me. Look at what he has done in great love for you. Paul captures some of this in a section in Philippians 2. And so Sophie's going to come and read that to us and then together we're going to sing God's praises together. The incarnation is astounding, mystifying. We are swimming in deep waters here. How can this one person, Jesus, be both fully God and fully human? So we're going to watch a video and see together how those who've gone before us have tried to nut out this question of how Jesus could be fully God and fully human. So sit back and take it in. Christians believe Jesus of Nazareth was simultaneously God and a human being. How does that work? The eyewitness accounts in the New Testament clearly show Jesus was human, like you and me. He was born a baby. We are told he grew in wisdom as he got older. He got tired. Like when he was in the boat with the disciples. He got anxious. In the Garden of Gethsemane before he died. He had friends. Men and women. He had enemies. Who wanted to kill him. He had frenemies. <laughs> That'd be Judas who betrayed him. There were things he didn't know. Like when he'd be coming back. He cried. A couple times. He got angry. There was that scene he made in the temple. His body had all of our frailties. He couldn't even carry his cross after they beat him so bad. He died. Yet at the same time, the Gospels record him doing and saying things that only God can do. He forgave people their sins. He called himself equal with God. Yeah, they really hated on him when he did that. When he appeared to Thomas after his resurrection, Thomas' conclusion was, my Lord and my God. When the disciples met the risen Jesus, they worshipped him. And the first Christians were in no doubt this man Jesus was God in the flesh, worthy to be loved, served and worshipped, as only the one true living God ought be. So how can this man Jesus be God as well as human? This was a significant challenge for the early church. How do we express this truth that Jesus was fully God and fully human? And it took several hundred years for the debates and language to settle. Now, one response that we come across today is that Jesus can't be God anyway. The very idea that a human could simultaneously be God is regarded as utterly ridiculous. Marcus Borg is just one of many writers who hold this view. Sure, Jesus was a great and impressive guy, but God? No, that's just the invention of the church. This is what he says. Do I think Jesus thought of himself as divine? No. Perceiving oneself in such grand terms is a fairly good indicator that you're off base. Thinking that Jesus thought of himself in such grand terms raises serious questions about the mental health of Jesus. I don't think people like Jesus have an exalted perception of themselves. So Marcus is saying only crazy people think that they're God. That's right. 
And we don't want to think of Jesus as crazy, so Marcus's conclusion is that Jesus was just a human being who was particularly open to the Spirit of God. A bit of a supercharged human. More like a Jedi, channeling the Spirit instead of the Force. But he certainly wasn't God. Now, Marcus Borg is not an evangelical. He doesn't believe the Bible is the Word of God. And rejecting the Bible as the Word of God is the only way you can come to the conclusion that he does. Because the consistent conclusion of the eyewitnesses in the Bible is that Jesus was fully divine and worthy of the worship that only God commands. Which is why we don't find anyone in the early centuries of Christianity making a similar sort of claim. They took the Bible too seriously to just ignore what it said. So one church historian makes this observation. The widespread denial of Christ's divinity in liberal Christianity in modern times finds no reflection in any of the major classical heresies. So we'll give Jesus was just a supercharged human a pass. The opposite response was deceitism. Jesus was fully God, but only seemed to be human. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means seems. The thinking here is that God is changeless and eternal, so it isn't possible for God to suffer and die like Jesus did on the cross. So therefore, Jesus only seemed to have been human like us. Jesus looked human, acted human, but really, he was just God playing a part. He wasn't actually a full human being like you and me. The difficulty with this conclusion is about truth. Why would Jesus pretend to be tired, pretend not to know things, pretend to suffer and die? If what we see and hear from Jesus is not the real deal, then how is God a God of truth? And if he's not a God of truth, how can we trust him? This deceitic view was popular in some circles in the early years of Christianity, but it was rejected by the early church councils as heresy. It doesn't match up to what the Bible tells us. You'll still hear the label deceitic thrown around today, but usually as a theological insult against those who don't treat Jesus as fully human. Alan Spence puts it like this. It is unlikely today that any theologians would describe themselves as deceitists or argue that Jesus did not truly suffer in a physical or material body. Rather, the word tends to be used in a pejorative sense to describe Christologies which are held to have failed to affirm adequately the human reality of Christ as a fully human, physical, mental and spiritual being. So it's a theological put down, a way to slag off against those who you think haven't let Jesus be human enough. Even though the Decetic view was rejected, the debate about how Jesus could be fully human and fully God continued in the early church. Apollinarius put forward the view that what happened in the Incarnation was that God took on a human body but retained his divine mind. Because for Apollinarius, the thought that Jesus would have a mind like you and me was demeaning for God. This is what he said. We confess that the word of God has not descended upon a holy man, which happened in the case of the prophets, Rather, the word became flesh without having assumed a human mind, that is, a changeable mind, which is enslaved to filthy thoughts, but which exists as an immutable and heavenly divine mind. Lots of Christians still think this way. They think that because he was God, Jesus knew everything. The difficulty is that that is not what the eyewitnesses say in the Bible. So when the woman with the bleeding problem touched Jesus' clothing and was healed, Jesus' response was to turn around and ask the crowd, who touched me? He didn't know. And when he was asked by his disciples about when he would return, again, Jesus said he didn't know. So the God mind view doesn't match with what the Bible says. But there's a bigger problem with Apollinarius's theory. Gregory of Nazianzen, in his reply to Apollinarius, pointed out that the Bible says Jesus had to be made like us in every way in order to be our representative and substitute. 
how can Jesus be our representative substitute if he doesn't have a human mind like us? It was an important theological point, and Gregory felt free to dump on anyone who followed Apollinarius's false trail. This is what he said. If anyone had put his trust in him as a man without a human mind, he is really bereft of mind and quite unworthy of salvation. That is, you're crazy if you believe this God mind in a human body stuff. And here's Gregory's famous line. For that which the Son of God has not assumed, that is, taken on in the incarnation, he has not healed, but rather that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half Adam fell, as crazy Apollinarius must think, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of Adam fell, he must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. So Gregory's point is that if God did not take on a fully human mind, then our minds are not redeemed. And so the whole of our being is not actually saved. That's right, which shows what's at stake in these debates. They're not pointless theological arguments. For the early church, it was about truth and salvation. They wanted to say only true things about the living Lord Jesus, and so should we. And that means being true to what the scriptures tell us about him. But as Gregory's argument shows, what's at stake in these debates is our salvation. Your view of Jesus has consequences for how you think about salvation. So if you think Jesus was just a supercharged, spirit-sensitive human, then you'll probably conclude that any person sufficiently open to the spirit will be accepted by God. It's not Jesus' death and resurrection that are key to your salvation, but your openness to the Spirit, wherever that Spirit may be found. And if you buy the deceitic view that God couldn't really take on genuine humanity and suffer and die, you'll probably conclude that the answer to suffering is to escape the physical world. You'll introduce a hard division between the spiritual, which is good, and the physical, which is bad. That's the path the Gnostics took, an early heretical Christian sect. Salvation for them was escaping the physical world through finding union with God through knowledge, and it reflected what they thought about Jesus. Our view of Jesus and the Incarnation will always shape our understanding of salvation. Truth and salvation. That's why we should care about getting our Lord Jesus right. A fourth view of how Jesus could be God and human was put forward by Nestorius in the 5th century AD. Nestorianism held that in the one physical body of Christ were two persons, God the Eternal Son and the human being, Jesus of Nazareth. What this meant for Nestorius was that when he read the Gospels, he would attribute what he saw Christ doing as either the person of God the Son or to the person of Jesus the man. So when you see Christ falling asleep in the boat because he's tired, you should say Jesus is tired because God can't get tired. But when you see Jesus a few moments later calming the storm, you should say, God calmed the storm. Of course, humans can't command nature like that. A particular contentious point for Nestorius, which ended up getting him in lots of trouble, was how this played out for Mary, the woman who gave birth to Jesus. People at the time liked to call Mary the mother of God. But for Nestorius, this was a problem. Being born, like getting tired in a boat, is not something that happens to God, according to Nestorius. So he insisted on calling Mary the mother of Christ or the mother of Jesus. This made him deeply unpopular. But for Nestorius, it seemed right. As he said, I could not call a baby two or three months old God. Mary wasn't breastfeeding God, surely. No, she was just nursing the baby Jesus. But Cyril of Alexandria led the charge against Nestorianism. He said, It is not sufficient for sound doctrine merely to hold a union of two persons as to some. He is looking at you, Nestorius. 
For scripture says, not that the word united himself to the person of a man, but that he was made flesh. That means nothing else than that he partook flesh and blood like us. He made our body his own without ceasing to be God. According to Cyril, Nestorius had weakened the extent of the incarnation. Jesus is not two persons in one body, but one person. Every act of Jesus is an act of God incarnate, God enfleshed. There are no separate God acts or human acts in Jesus. So how should we understand Jesus as fully God and fully human? The resolution finally came in 451 AD at the Council of Chalcedon, though the foundations had been laid in the discussions over the previous centuries. In the Incarnation, God the Eternal Son adds a human nature to his divine nature. So in Jesus, there is one divine person, God the Son, but with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. The one person of God the Son genuinely lives a normal human life expressed through his human nature. Without abandoning his divine nature. That divine nature is still there, but its qualities aren't permitted to distort his genuine human nature, for example, by removing the limitations of that human nature. So, for example, God the Son, in his divine nature, is everywhere and knows everything. Yet in the incarnation, when God the Son takes to himself a human nature in his life as a human being, he is limited in location to this one body, and he is limited to what a human being in his situation knows. So he has to learn how to walk, how to speak. He can grow in wisdom, as the Bible tells us the young Jesus did. At the same time, in his divine nature, God the Son does know all things and is present everywhere at once. There are moments in the New Testament which point in this direction. For example, in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul is speaking about the church. But notice what he says right at the end about Jesus. And God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ fills everything in every way. If God the Son has only a human nature then it makes no sense to say that he fills everything in every way. That is a quality of his divine nature. But we also know the resurrected Christ lives in a resurrected human body. It is because he is one person, God the Son, in two natures, one divine, one human, that Jesus can be both seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven and simultaneously fill everything in every way. Gerald Bray explains what this means when we read the Gospels. Put in the most simple language, Jesus could be fully God without knowing, as a man, the secrets of nuclear physics or even how to use a telephone. His omniscience as God did not automatically carry over into his life on earth as a man. God the Son really did take on a human nature with all of its limitations and frailties. Why? To reveal what God is like, to fulfill his promise of his presence, and most of all, to secure our redemption as our representative and substitute. So why don't you take just a few moments now just to chat to those sitting around you, share anything that stood out to you from that video, there's a summary on pages 28 and 29. Just take a few minutes to chat about it together, what stood out to you? Okay. Well what difference does it make to you that God has come in the flesh? True, it's amazing, it's wonderful, it's the foundation of our salvation, but even more it changes you. 
Because God in Christ came in the flesh, you in Christ are in the flesh no longer. You can see it up on the screen there. Because God in Christ came in the flesh, you in Christ are in the flesh no longer. Let's return to Romans 8. Look at what Paul says there of everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. On page 30 of your booklet, I'm going to start reading though just two verses earlier at verse 7. Paul says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pause there for a moment before we hit verse 9. Remember, in the flesh can have several different meanings. It can mean having a physical body. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about having a rebellious human nature that is opposed to God. If you outright reject God's word and way, then you are hostile to God. And if that's who you are, then you won't and you can't please God. But look at what Paul says next in verse 9 about every person who's turned to Jesus. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. You're no longer in the flesh. Now clearly you still have a physical body, as Paul mentions in verse 10. When Paul says you're no longer in the flesh, he means you no longer have that fundamental rebellious core. Instead, God has put His Spirit in you. Or in the language of the Old Testament, He's given you a new heart, one that wants to follow him, to love him, even if at times we still wander from his way. But Jesus describes it as being born all over again, a fresh start. Or elsewhere, Paul describes it as being a new creation. If you've turned to Jesus in repentance and trust, then his spirit is in you and you are no longer in the flesh. I wonder how you think about what Jesus has done for you. It helps, actually, to have a rich picture of the different ways the Bible describes what he's done for us. He's paid our ransom. He's fulfilled our debt. He's washed us clean. Here, it's a heart transplant. We've gone from having a fleshly, worldly heart to a spirit-filled heart. And there's no doubt that includes you if you put your trust in Jesus because you can't be a Christian without the Spirit. Look at how Paul continues in verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his Spirit who dwells in you. It's a package deal. Turning to Jesus in repentance and faith, no longer being in the flesh, future resurrection after death. It's all part of the same package. It's part of the same work of God's Spirit in you. So here's a question for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, what place does sin have in your life? Let me introduce you to five gingerbread people there on page 30 and up on the screen. Which one of these best reflects how we should now think of ourselves as those who are in Christ when it comes to sin? Let me explain them first, and then you can have a chat to the people around you. Sin is represented in these pictures by the dark shading. So, in the first gingerbread person, the one on the left, you can see that we're mostly dark with just a few spots of white. So, as a Christian, I have a little bit of holiness in what is fundamentally a sinful person. Or is it the second gingerbread person? They're half white, half dark. We're split internally 
between sin and holiness and an internal war wages? Or is it the third gingerbread person? We're basically now morally neutral, open to both temptation to sin, but also encouragements to holiness. It's just a matter of which external voice you're listening to at any one time, which determines which way you go. A fourth option is the on the street option. Sin is like clothing, put on what is a clean body. Or the fifth final option, we are sin-free. Sin is not part of our present experience at all. Which of those options do you think best captures the present reality of sin in the life of a Christian? Take a moment to discuss with those around you. Put a tick in the box that you think best. Be bold. All right. It's deliberately a bit tricky. There are bits of truth in all of them. Numbers one and two resonate with our experience. We often feel that that's how it is. And certainly, like number three, we do experience encouragements and temptations. But the one I think best captures the biblical reality of sin in the life of a Christian is, I think, number four. So, let me explain. When Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, he's telling us that a fundamental change has occurred in us. We have had the heart transplant so that we are no longer enslaved or controlled by sin. We really do want to follow Jesus and please him, which sometimes, even though that's our heart's desire, we wander from that way. But you wouldn't have that heart's desire if God's spirit wasn't active in you, if you weren't a new creation, if you weren't no longer in the flesh, but now in the spirit. The sad truth is, despite no longer being in the flesh, we do keep going back to our old fleshly ways. We're slow to get rid of those old fleshly habits or to take off that old, those old sinful ways like an old piece of clothing that no longer fits. Of course, where we're heading when Jesus returns is the last gingerbread person, where there's no more sin in our experience, where we will finally be like our Lord Jesus and entirely sin-free. But for now... The battle is to take off the old practices, get rid of the old habits of sin, because in Jesus, you are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. Which brings us to the wonderful consequences of no longer being in the flesh. I've picked a few that Paul mentions in the same letter to the Romans. To make it easy, I've put the consequences in bold there in the text, and the implications he draws in bold italics. So first I've listed the verse for which we started, Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I described this earlier as maybe the most precious verse of your existence, the most precious truth of your life. Now that's a big call, but I think it's right. What other truth could compete with it? That your earthly family love you? I mean, that's pretty good if that happens to be true for you. That I have good friends? That's also pretty precious. That my dog loves me, that's pretty great and it's hard to argue with and you've already seen my wonderful, our family dog, Charlie, and how awesome he is, but that I have a good job lined up when I graduate, that's a precious truth. That I have a distinction average, distinction, you say, try HD, I mean, please. <laughs> those, are all, those are all real blessings from God, but, but the most precious truth of your life is that in Christ Jesus, you now have no condemnation before God 
Because despite all of those other blessings, eternal condemnation was what we were each going to get when we faced up to him. But not any longer. Praise God. No condemnation. That's our cry. That's the most precious truth of our life. You can see how else Paul puts it. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Because we're in the Spirit and set our mind on the Spirit, we have life, not death. We have peace with God. Or in Romans 5, 8 to 11, we've been justified by Jesus' blood. We've been declared not guilty. We've been saved. We'll be saved on that future day of God's wrath when Jesus returns to judge. Or in verse 10 there, we've been reconciled to God through Jesus' death. Our relationship with him is no longer broken. Or in the next passage there from Romans 6, verses 10 to 14, because you're no longer in the flesh but in the spirit, you should understand yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Or as Paul puts it a bit further down in verse 14, sin is no longer your master. Now, Paul draws some implications for us from this truth, which I've highlighted there in italics. In verse 11, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Instead, in verse 13, offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Because you're now in the Spirit, you don't need to let sin reign. Sin does not have that power over you. Not now that you're in the Spirit and no longer in the flesh. Which is why if you turn over the page to page 32 in the next passage, which is back to Romans 8, we're encouraged to use the Spirit to put to death the deeds or the misdeeds of the body. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. The Spirit leads us in living like Jesus. He always points us to the Lord Jesus. He convicts us of our sin when we're not living like the Lord Jesus and He helps us to put sin to death so that we grow to be more like the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to put sin to death in your life? It means kill it off with extreme prejudice. Don't show sin any mercy in your life. Don't give sin a second chance. Don't entertain it. Be ruthless in killing sin. Because as we've already heard, the mind that sets itself on the flesh is dead. So in the power of God's Spirit who lives in you, Let's stop offering parts of our body as instruments of wickedness. Let's stop using our tongues to lie or to speak ill of people. Let's put that sin to death. Let's stop using our hands to steal or to manipulate. Let's stop using our eyes to feed lust. Let's stop using our fingers to search up porn. Let's stop using our body in sexually immoral ways because we're no longer in the flesh. We're in the spirit. And we're going to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Let's stop using our minds to dream up revenge or to feed hatred. As Paul said back in Romans chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life. That's what being led by the Spirit looks like in your life. Now, to get personal and concrete for a moment, we're just going to, uh, we've pre-recorded a video. Uh, Kit, one of our senior staff, interviewed Miranda from Science and Ross, one of our LRLR workers who works in Bible translation. They've um, thought about some of these questions already and they recorded this interview to share with us right now. 
Hi, everyone. Hi, uh, Ross and Miranda. Thanks for coming and being willing to share. To share. Um, we're going to explore some of the things that we've just heard um, from Rowan. Uh, so we just talked about how it's a wonderful consequences of being redeemed in Christ, how there's no more condemnation, how we have life and not death, how we have peace with God, um, and how we are dead to sin and alive in God. Uh, so Ross, why don't you start us off? Um, what does it mean to have these things for you? Um, good question. But I, I think it makes me feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world. Mm. Uh, actually, like I don't have my sins counted against me. I'm a friend of God rather than an enemy. I have a future assured to me that, that lets me be free to live out, live a purposeful life, but God's purposes. I don't have to worry about what other people think of me. Not that I don't worry about what other people think of me. And as for the sin bit, well, I believe the scripture when it says that I'm no longer sin's victim, but living as a slave to righteousness, well, that's another matter. <laughs> but at least I want to live uh, free from sin and uh, to live the holy life that God wants me to. So maybe that'll do. Okay. Um, what about you, Miranda? Uh, I think a very similar thing for me. Um, I remember when I, I think it was in first year, um, I had it for the longest time that um, right before I went to bed, I would literally think if I die tonight, like, would my faith be enough? Which is like the complete opposite of the gospel, because the idea is that Jesus' grace is sufficient. But I genuinely would think, because I'd grown up as a Christian, um, that instead of thinking, oh, Jesus Christ, I went, oh, like, is my faith enough? And I think when I truly grappled with grace um, and actually talked to others about it and actually came to really understand what it was like to be redeemed, I then realized, no, I don't need to worry about that because it's not about my faith. It's about the amount of grace that has been shown to me. Um, every now and then a thought like that might pop up, but I guess being redeemed, it's kind of shutting that down um, with the knowledge of the gospel yeah oh thank you thanks for both for sharing um i wanted to just uh focus a little bit about sin about our fight against sin um so the bible exhorts us to not let sin reign in our life and to put sin to death by the spirit um how have you both seen this worked out in your own life um maybe miranda do you want to start first this time hmm uh, for me, I think one of the big areas where I found I was willing to give everything over but this one area um, was future plans. Um, <laughs> Ross might be offended by this, um, but I was like always like, God, just like, please, I do not want to go into ministry. I do not want to go into mission. I'm happy to do um, anything. I want to adventure. I want to travel. I just don't want to do any of that. And I would always feel um, really upset um, almost at NTEs and stuff like that when I was really called to do mission because I felt this tension where um, I felt like I was going against God um, and so it really took actually once again one night just kind of on my bed just going okay I've had enough of this I'm going to give all of this up to you um, I don't know whether God's going to plan me for ministry or mission or whether I'll just end up serving out in the workforce um, but I think the difference is now in repenting is my mindset towards my future plans. Um, instead of going, no, I want to do this. This is like the, the direction I want to go. It's more 
thinking I'm going to commit this up to God. God's going to decide where we go. I still have wants and things I want to do, but I'm not going to put as much weight on them as much and let God deal with that. So I guess that's an area that, yeah, I need to repent in. Mm, so yeah, letting go of like the control, particularly you're saying like of the future. What did you, Ross, did you want to respond about the bit about being a missionary? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no, I think the missionary life's the easier, the easier choice. So <laughs> take it. Uh, if it's a Bible trend, if it's being Bible translator in the bush, we can hide away from things. And in in fact, I think I've never really been upset about listening to Miranda there. I've never really been upset about something. And that probably says a lot about to me. I've always, I think I've always thought that I'm pretty good because I, like Miranda, grew up as a Christian. And you know, I, I was firstborn never you know never really you know maybe i'm a bit passive aggressive you know whatever but just just sort of nice you know <laughs> maybe i can hide things better but um but i've always always appreciated people that got really upset by their sin or had dark nights of the soul or whatever i think oh man they're the luckiest people in the world and i've never been there you know but just in the last couple of weeks, I, I've been thinking about what it means to be slaves to a slave to righteousness, just because it came up in the Bible study, and I had to lead it, and I had to try to work out what it meant. And um, <clears throat> it's sort of, well, actually, I led the Bible study, and then just as somebody was praying, I was thinking, oh, slave to righteousness. Because in the Bible study, I'd said, that sounds pretty boring to me. It sounds pretty hard work to be a slave to righteousness. And when the benefit is holiness, I think holiness is a benefit. You know, it's like it's so much against the, the, the human grain to think of think of being good as a great thing, you know. <laughs> um, but then I got to thinking, well, the only way I can think about being a slave to righteousness is being a slave, is how people think about being a slave to sin. Like sinning is their life. Sinning is all controlling. Sinning is, sinning is all encompassing. Sinning is fun. Sinning is the best thing in the world, right? So I have to think of righteousness, how God um, wants me to be, as the best thing in the world, as, as fun, as the thing that makes the world go round and will make the whole world good, right? And so I'm, I'm starting to grapple with that and work out how how it is part of it, it has, it's, it's God's imperative to me to, to be like that, even though he doesn't want me to struggle and he doesn't save me because I'm struggling. Um, so, yeah, and I think, how does that work out in my life? Probably if, if I think about it, you know, I'm the most sinful when it comes to being a husband um, because that's when you can be the most selfish, you know, and, um, but it's, and it's usually when just, um, getting annoyed and being a little bit cross about things. And then those things are the most stupidest. They're not being, not being cross about big things. They're being cross about the little things. That is just completely stupid. And I think that God is helping me hold my tongue, which shouldn't need to be held, but it, it needs to be held. And I'm, I'm going that way. Anyway, um, you know, there's probably a lot more. I probably need a counselor, but anyway, to tell me. But, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for, thank you both for sharing yeah because I feel like um this is quite a personal thing about giving up sin and what things that you have struggled with so yeah thank you um for sharing um 
what about examples in like other people's lives that you have noticed? So yeah, wondering whether you have seen anyone else um, live this out and whether you can share an encouraging story of how you've seen, yeah, a person who lived this out. One of you want to start? <laughs> you go ahead. Okay, I can start then. Um, I have... I had a friend um, who was in my youth group back at All Saints West Winfield. And when she was with us, um, she was quite a character. She's very funny. Um, she loved to be uh, the center of attention. Um, but her downfall was that all the conversations would be kind of steered towards her. Um, she was very self-centered, um, which seems really mean to say out loud, to be honest. Um, but yeah, she was funny to be around, but you could never really get to those deeper conversations or they would always be about her. And so she asked her family and her actually ended up moving churches. Um, and I saw her about two years later after meeting her there and she completely changed. Um, it was on the train and I was in a conversation with her and she really wanted to know how I was. So she was asking, how are you? Where are you at with God? So it's like now redirecting to God where that would never be the case. And on top of that, she wanted to go into chaplaincy, which is like a career that's all about other people. It's not about you. Um, so I think that turnaround really showed how God had been working in her life. Um, and I think that was a really cool and encouraging example of how much of a difference um, knowing Jesus really makes. Mm. Yeah, that is a cool story. I, I can think of three people off my, <laughs> my head, but um, oh, I pr can probably think of more. But um, the, the first one is Lyndall, my wife. Um, she'd probably hate me for saying this, but... Um, She's, she's there watching. She's not there watching, <laughs> there watching me, but she'll hear it. Um, no, I think that over the years, seeing her seeing her grow as a Christian and being so intentional about being a Christian and reading her Bible and want, want and feeling bad when she feels, when she thinks that she messed up or she didn't do it right and then wanting other people to live that way and people value her as that sort of, as a, as a wise person, it seems, and she, and she wants to be, that way so that's that's my first one i want to be my like my wife mm. <laughs> um this the second one is richard hibbard from from smbc who was the most he was the the missions person there and he no longer is he died at like 50 something a couple of years ago but he was the most normal natural fun loving jesus loving person that that i've ever known i think and who was who and he, he was a missionary in Bulgaria and then he was a you know a missionary to SNBC and to, to us and just wanting to know Jesus, wanting to live Jesus' life, wanting to share Jesus. And I think, man, but he did it in such a way that he was he's the, he wasn't holier than thou. He was the sort of guy that you would most want to be like. That's what I feel um, the other one is John Piper, who I, I don't know, but I've lived with for 20 years listening to him and reading him and thinking that guy gets up at 4 a.m. in the morning because he takes he takes his his calling so seriously and his sin so seriously and, and himself so seriously and life so seriously that he does that. And I think, hmm, I should be like that, but I don't like 4 a.m. <laughs> Well, I have met Lyndall and I have known Richard and yeah, I agree. They're both really great godly examples. Yeah. 
Um, so thank you, Miranda and Ross, for taking time out um, and just sharing with us. Um, I hope that for everyone who's listening, that you will ask each other these questions as well. Ask each other, what does it mean to have no condemnation in your life? What does it mean to have life and peace with God? And how have you seen in your own life how you've, you know, put to death to sin? Because I think these are actually quite challenging questions, but I think why not um, today, you know, have these conversations, uh, reflect and share with one another um, how you're going, because I think that will be an encouragement. All right. Thanks, everyone. Okay, time to wrap this up. Yesterday, I talked about how we're all searching for connection. We want to be fully known, to be accepted, to be valued, to be loved. We want to belong, to find our place. And while we get little taste of that in our relationships with each other, Jesus' point was that the fundamental relationship for which we've all been created and which we find those desires met is in our relationship with Him and with His Heavenly Father. It's that relationship that we've been exploring this morning. In great love, God has reconciled us to himself, dealing with sin for us, both its penalty and its power, by taking on sinful flesh for us. He did this. He became this and did that for us. So three brief implications. First of all, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus... Don't let this offer from the Lord Jesus pass you by. He's offering you adoption into his family, forgiveness of your sin. He's offering you eternal life, reconciliation with God who loves you, who made you. He is offering you the most precious truth of your life, which you can never earn. No condemnation, no matter what you have done. A completely fresh start with him. Don't walk past that offer. Even today, you could take up that offer from the Lord Jesus. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, if you've never really said, okay, Jesus, I'm going to stop rejecting your word and way, I'm going to start trusting you, then listen to what God is offering you in his son, Jesus. Be reconciled to him. Turn to Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. You don't know when Jesus will return and your time will be up. It is the best and most important decision you will ever make. And you can do it this morning. The end of the session, come down, speak with some of the staff who will be down at the front. They would love to pray with you and help you accept Jesus' gift of reconciliation. Secondly, what does it mean for those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Saviour? Well, I think Paul's perspective in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is really helpful, which is there on your page. He says... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. My old self, the me that has the mind set on the flesh, that old me was crucified with Jesus. I am dead to sin, and now it's Jesus who lives in me by his Spirit dwelling within me. And finally, what does this mean for us as God's people together who study at Sydney Uni? Well, the EU, in one of its sort of fundamental beliefs, says this. It's there on your page. The EU is committed to upholding the fundamental truths of Christianity, including redemption from the guilt 
penalty and power of sin only through the sacrificial death as our representative and substitute of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. That's what we've been exploring this morning. That's what we believe. And so this is what we announce to our friends and classmates, to the academics, to the uni staff. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, fully God, fully human, our representative and substitute, who does for us what we could never do, reconciles us to God. He became this and did that for us. So we're going to finish our time together with a song and then Sam will come and give us directions for what's next.